0: It's my honor to be joined now by Dr. Michael Turner. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Sure, thank you, Dell. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. Absolutely. So would you say that
0: COVID has changed how you practice medicine or look at medicine in any way, or did it just fortify thoughts that you already had?
1: Well, both, but very much on the change side, I would say, uh, by and large. So one of the disturbing things about COVID was I learned that you couldn't trust some of the national healthcare institutions, which were tasked and funded and mandated to safeguard the public interest. We right. had to begin to see that they were corrupt uh, and easily influenced, manipulated, et cetera. Um, I also had to then come to terms with the fact that the medical society similarly weren't taking leadership, leading academic medical centers weren't taking leadership. You know, as Dr. Lindley pointed out and others, as, as you've mentioned before, let's just consider the example of early treatment, right? There was a vacuum a deafening silence of what to do for the patient. They were getting sent home from the ER, told to take some Tylenol ibuprofen, then when they couldn't breathe, they come back and they get intubated, get remdesivir and die. And so where where was Harvard Medical School saying, here's the outpatient COVID treatment protocol? Where was John Hopkins? Where was the Cleveland Clinic? Where's the AMA? None of those groups. In fact, I did a Google search, how how to treat COVID at home. And I put this in my Substack article. It's really interesting. You know what? It's the most prominent thing that comes up how to treat COVID at home, Dell. it says get vaccinated. I said, that's curious, Right. because first of all, the vaccine, even if it were great, it's not a treatment for right. outpatient COVID. It's a purported prevention strategy. Let's just be very logical and simplistic. What if someone who's already vaccinated gets COVID? Then we're back to square one. How do we treat COVID at home, right. short of a hospital, even right. for vaccinated people? No answer, get vaccinated, it's nonsensical. Not to mention, if someone has COVID, it's actually medically contraindicated to get vaccine the vaccine. Again, even if we thought right. the vaccine was great, it's medical malpractice to give it someone while they're suffering from COVID. So again, the fact that the most number one uh, Google prominent search for how to treat COVID at home was get vaccinated was just disturbing and shocking, promulgated by the CDC. Right.
0: Yeah. So so when you look at that now, and and I would think, I mean, I've tried to say to people that when we try to understand what happened here, the, the logic and reason, you're, you're, you just start shaking because there's no logic, no reason to it. Like you said, why is Harvard not getting involved? Why is the Cleveland Clinic not getting involved? Why is it the AMA is just sitting back? For the first time in history as we know it, early treatment is not being attempted. In fact, it is being thwarted. Anybody that comes up with anything that could be an early treatment, they're attacked and shut down. We've got to go back to doing nothing. I mean, it was the most insane thing I've ever seen in modern medicine where it doesn't matter if it's cancer or an infection or whatever it is. Everything we know about modern medicine now is the sooner you treat it, the better. And in this case, no, no treatment. Go home until you're sicker, then come back. And so under those circumstances, I've been saying it's more like a religion Mm -hmm. that this thing is not clearly based on science. I don't know where we lost it. Mm-hmm. But as when I look at doctors now, I feel you're almost more like clergy. You're you're mm-hmm. part of a religion. That's where it's at with them. Like they're so like, I just can't accept this, not because I mean you can put science in front of them, but because there's this like ideological connection to this concept of vaccines that
1: yeah. they can't let go of. True. And that is very difficult uh, to overcome. To, very difficult to overcome. Dr. Corey was on your show recently and did yeah. a great job mentioning, uh, speaking to this point, right? Which is to say, as we come through our training as physicians, the idea of vaccines not being helpful uh, is not even discussed. It's not a question of open debate. Like we can discuss what whether the latest and greatest cancer treatment is good or heart attack treatment. But are vaccines good or not? It's, it's like asking, you know, is the earth flat or, or yeah. not? Right. It, it, it will literally get you that ostracized. So it's so ingrained and assumed. Therefore, to question that at a strong level, to go right after that with a laser beam is very destabilizing towards everything that a physician has been taught. So I, we also have to have respect for physicians as human beings, first of all, right? With belief systems, some of them challenged, uh, some of them well thought through uh, after lots of introspection, some of them well chosen based on evidence, some of them glibly handed down from other people. Uh, some of them with financial motives and conflicts of interest. And human beings make most of the decisions from an emotional viewpoint. We know that from neuroscience scans of the brain when we ask people questions and have them make decisions. We're not logical and rational, right? Right. And so we have to have that appreciation. And I guess one, one word of encouragement, perhaps, is as you're trying to have that discussion with your doctor, right? More facts and more data is not the place to start. Again, as Dr. Corey's mentioned in a lot of uh, different interviews, right, um, the place to start is with a question. More facts and more data can just be dismissed, but a question makes them think through it a little bit more. And also, I would start along the lines of being conciliatory and respectful, right? That doctor, as you mentioned earlier, as Dr. Lindley mentioned earlier, came into the profession with an idea to help people. Now, they're in a system that's not doing that, and increasingly poor job, even dangerous, even irresponsible job within COVID, that is true. But that heart of the physician to be a healer, to be someone who puts their head on the pillow at night, feeling proud of their day's work, who's proud at family gatherings, I'm a doctor, I'm a healthcare provider, I help people, that's their core value and drive deep inside. So you have to touch into that and say, hey, can we talk about this a little bit? I'm not trying to say everything you believe is wrong, right? That won't get you too far, I have a question here. Do you mind? And that's exactly what happened with me. I had a well-respected patient who was a chiropractor in my area, Washington state mandated vaccines for all healthcare providers. He said, absolutely. I don't want this thing. I'm not going to get it. Can you write me exemption? I said, well, I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with that. I haven't written an exemption yet. I haven't really heard that these are bad. You know, tell me more. He said, well, have you heard of Dr. Malone? No, never heard of him. Would you be willing to read an article? Sure. Next thing I know, he sends me a few things on my cell phone. I start reading about Dr. Malone. And it went from there. So we had a great doctor-patient relationship the whole time. On his side, he was asking some good questions. On my side, I was trying to be open-minded and be the best healer I could be, which is what, what we all want deep inside.
0: All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge. I mean, I have you both here for a reason because I think you represent. I've known you for several years uh, we've been in this fight in many ways together. Um, you, you sort of woke up in the middle of COVID. You've gotten the vaccine. It was my understanding at the beginning, and then it's like, oh my God, what is this? And you were kind of skeptical before it, it was all coming out. But we're talking about the doctor-patient relationship, and you're saying, you know, I have to appreciate, you know, what this doctor's gone through. And I'll tell you, I think there's a lot of people in my audience, and I'm, just gonna, I'm not even going to speak for them. Let me speak for myself. I don't have a whole lot of appreciation, to be totally honest. Um, I believe that maybe a half a million people or more were murdered by doctors over the last three years. Uh, it is going to be one of the most horrific incidences in the history of mankind. And so as I sit here and I appreciate that in the future we are going to need doctors. They have always played an important role uh, in our lives. But what we just saw was uh, genocide because we appreciate doctors so much, because we have just learned to turn ourselves over. And so as, as you want to work at, you know, redeveloping this relationship and bringing doctors in to help them understand that you need to take back control of this, I just, there's a lot to repair here. And I'm not sure, I don't know if I'm ready for it. And so to that point, where do we start? I mean, where do we start in repairing this? Because this isn't some tiny little event that just happened. Right. People were denied life-saving care, were put on drugs like remdesivir that have a horrific um, testing background, and then ventilators. And while, as you pointed out, nine out of ten people are dying using this protocol and none other, denying all the others, Yeah. everyone kind of just goes along with it. I mean, when I talk to doctors that are like, yeah, I mean, I've asked doctors, you have to, you have." covid patients dying of kidney failure does covid cause kidney failure no does that make you ask yourself at all like maybe this drug remdesivir which has a side effect of kidney failure that maybe you're killing them and it just doesn't even sink in so i want to be honest right now mm-hmm. yeah we got a long ways to go how the heck are we going to get at least for people that are are waking up my 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 what i've said here is i think you got to be very careful to trust doctors so how do we how do we move forward
1: yeah well, thank you for sharing that, though. Yeah. Truly, uh, I can understand. Just to comment on that, you know, I can sympathize. I lost a close friend that was a voicemail we heard played during my yeah. queue. She was a close friend, personal friend. I was treating her successfully with ivermectin. She was up doing great. Um, the, the pharmacy right down the street refused to fill the script. Okay. Right. I reordered it. It got lost in the mail. She got hospitalized, got on remdesivir, died of kidney failure and a staph infection. Okay. All because the pharmacy across the street would not fill a valid legal prescription for me, the doctor, and I had to resort to mail or pharmacy, and it got lost in the mail, and she died, and her voicemail still sitting in my phone. She's breathless, as you said. I don't want to die. I think they're going to intubate me. And by the way, she had said before, don't ever give me remdesivir. Everybody knew that, but they waited until after she was intubated, and then they prevailed on the power of attorney. I think some family member convinced th- that person that it was the last best shot, et cetera. So there is... Some righteous anger that needs to be here. I'll use the word indignation and accountability and justice and truth that needs to come out. I completely agree. I would just make two points. I would say to focus on the doctor is too low on the food chain. It's too low on the pyramid. Right. Because the doctor's practicing in a system. Again, I'm not taking culpability away, but I'm just saying let's illuminate this iceberg a little bit more. Right. Yep. And at the top of the system, we have the government. So when the CDC and the NIH and the FDA all get on point and say, this is how you don't treat COVID, stay away from hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, those yeah. people are quacks. This is how you do safe and effective vaccines. Okay. And then all the medical societies fall into step and all the major journals fall into step and all the state medical boards fall into step and all the state medical boards come out strongly and say, we will sanction and discipline you if we find you prescribing ivermectin, by the way right? And California comes out with a law and says, we'll go after your license if you're guilty of COVID misinformation. How is that defined, right? Right. When my pediatrician friend, yeah, has an email sent out to him to say, he's a pediatrician. Email got sent to all the hospital employees, including him, right? Saying, if you speak against the vaccine, consider it your last day at work. Okay. And he's a pediatrician. So, Imagine if we could turn that around. So I'm going to I'm going to speak to the, the possibility of hope and renewal and, and change. Right. Imagine right. if we can turn that around. If we exerted enough pressure at the top, leverage the whole thing to flip. Imagine if federal government, state medical boards, journals, leading academic medical institutions, et cetera, all got on board and said, you know what? It's proven now. Hydroxychloroquine, and ivermectin are great. Vitamin D and zinc are great. Right? It's a standard of care. If we had a new standard of care, then all these doctors who work for that system would fall into line with the new standard of care because that's what they're due and that's what they're getting paid to do. Right? So if we manage to change the standard of care and the protocols that shake down, all of a sudden all these doctors who are acting in our minds recklessly would be acting in our best interest because conformity and uniformity are valued within medical care. And again, that makes sense to a degree, right? If you have a heart attack, right? You don't want to think, if I go to this hospital, they're going to treat it completely differently than if I go to this hospital or if I go out of state. And we got three different ways to treat a heart attack, right? As a patient, we're going to say, get some consistency, get on the same page. What's the best way to treat a heart attack? And then we want everybody following suit. We don't want Mr. Joe, Joe Docker over here being a maverick and inventing stuff. And these other people in the ER got a totally different way to treat a heart attack. It's like, let's get the science right and get, get, you know, some best practices. Mm,
0: yeah. If, I mean, I would push back on that. Yeah. I mean, I would push back and I worked on the doctor's television show yeah. for six years. And my job was to find the best there was in anything and one of the things we did we would have people writing into the show with with maladies that they couldn't find a doctor to fix and it was a great job it was like a santa claus job where i would yeah. search the world for some doctor that is treating whatever this thing is has some new way we would put them together and because they were going to get the best advertising in the world i could get any doctor do a surgery or whatever it was for free just say mm. take care of this patient if it works we'll show the world that it was achieved mm. and i will tell you that Medicine is only moving forward because of doctors that step outside of the norm and the conformity and the consensus and all of those things. It's what advances it. And, and my takeaway in working on the doctor's television is when people say, what did you learn working on that show? Yeah. What I would say after six years of working on that show, this is what I learned, that medicine does, is the slowest moving um, um, uh, evolution Uh, Of anything I've ever seen. We all think that this this person that does break out pushes the envelope and is having amazing success that Cleveland Clinic shows up and Mayo Clinic. And how did you do that? You were able to do a brain surgery without, you know, touching brain matter. And like, you know, one of the stories that I did, the opposite is true. I would say that the easiest way to get yourself fired or to, to, to lose your career is to step outside of the norm to actually achieve and the most successful, the most successful, brilliant things, miracles. When I watched miracles happen on that show, and they did happen, I would say that the greatest miracle workers were the ones that were the most under fire on their license and not by their patients because they were doing amazing for the patients by their peers. That the peers that said, I don't want to change how I do oncology, I don't want to change how I do a brain surgery, therefore, and they would boycott medical centers and say, you let that person keep doing what they're doing, which is advancing our art form, I want them to lose their job. And so under those circumstances, you know, uh, and Kat, I'm sure you've seen this that this, I I understand what we're saying about conformity, but it's that conformity that makes me wonder how you're ever gonna repair for me the doctor-patient relationship because it's always gonna to be top-down. It's always gonna be whatever a bureaucrat decides, doctors are just like this army of automatrons that will do whatever they're told. And when what we thought we were dealing with was a highly educated group of critical thinkers, the opposite appears to be the case.
2: I agree. and. While he's right that the problem is the system, I don't think you're gonna fix the system. The system is too corrupt. You're not gonna get NIH, the hospital associations to actually change what they're doing because they're making money, they're doing great. Why would they change? So I think that's why the Global Health Project, you asked me that question, who is our target? It is the doctors because they need to start listening to the patient, to the consumer. Consumer has the power. You know, the health is the only place where we just accept what we're given. You go to the ER, you have a procedure, you walk out, you have no idea how much it's going to cost you. That never happens if you go take your car somewhere. Right. You know exactly how much you're going to pay, who's going to do the work, what they're going to do. And that's kind of where we want to give power back to you, to the actual person. You need to go and interview the doctor. You don't like them, go somewhere else. The market will actually fix this. And the way it is going to fix it is going to make these doctors think, well, I'm losing patients, they're not signing up. You know, my schedule is really light. Doctors work in the system on RVUs, how many patients they see what they do. Take away those things, they're going to start waking up. The system will wake up too because this system is are losing money. Because we need to give courage to doctors to, I always say, step out of the matrix and actually open their own practices work in their own communities and create relationships. So I really think the power is in the person. You take your business somewhere else and they'll start feeling that. And a lot of people are now saying, I'm never going to go see a doctor. And they're taking better care of themselves. They're eating healthy, they're exercising, they're sleeping better. They're taking their vitamins and they're not going to the doctor every time they need to. They're going to see that in their paycheck. So I think people have to realize they have the power that's
0: the bottom line so let me bring it back and and i know i'm challenging and i and i know you're what you're saying i get what you're saying right we want quality control i want an fda to say that's some crazy stuff you're doing over there i've even said it on this show there's been some some stem cell injection companies that get busted for you know putting in the eyes and whatever and i'm like you know what Mm -hmm. though it looks like stem cells may very well be the solution in the future i actually do believe there's a place for an FDA to say do you have any evidence that this is going to work do you have any long term health consequences because people are going to Mexico well I can't get it here okay you you know you're I think you can do whatever you to yourself you want yeah but I do see a problem with making claims I do see so I don't want to say I'm, I'm against you know conformity but what you're what you said that we, we want this conformity don't we want heart doctors to all be doing the same thing in some ways I want to just push back on it a little bit, which is then what's the point of a second opinion? And what you're talking about, Kat, is, is having a second opinion. If everybody is doing it exactly the same way, then what use is a second opinion? Don't we want doctors that are using different ways of doing things and that we have a variety and and you know one size doesn't fit all and 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 to be honest you represent that you're a you know you're an integrative medicine doctor you're not just your general practitioner you do probably talk about vitamins since you're taking them yourself so uh, you know i know that you're one of these people so what do you know what do i do as a patient it, is there a second opinion worth getting or are they all really am i just going into a consensus machine
1: Uh, Good good question. There isn't a second opinion worth getting, I would say, first of all, which would be outside of your insurance-based doctor, first of all, truly.
0: So leave. So do one inside your insurance, then step outside your insurance For example,
1: correct. So it's so simple, but it it bears worth repeating, right, which is you work for whoever pays you. Okay. You work for whoever pays you. If the insurance company pays for you, you actually work for them. Now, doctors don't like to think that they work for them, right? They think they're working for the patient, and the patient doesn't like to think that the doctors work for the insurance company, they like to think of it as a doctor patient relationship. It's not. You work for whoever pays you. When you're a patient and you pay your insurance premium, you're basically subcontracting your medical care. You are oh. subcontracting your medical care to That's this group, point. right? And they pick who you get to see and how much that person's gonna get paid, therefore, how long your visit's gonna be, and what drug is approved or not, and whether you can use ivermectin or not. And whether they're going to crawl all over the doctor's back if he speaks against the vaccine or not. So you've essentially subcontracted your medical care. And it has the illusion that it's between you and the doctor in the exam room. It's not. There's a third party sitting in the middle with a financial conflict of interest. Okay. So best way to get a second opinion is to get outside the insurance matrix and ask someone who's free thinking, you know, as as we're talking about. By far, agreed, Dale. Yes.
0: Okay. Great point. Just get outside of someone that's going to be incentivized. They're going to the insurance manual on what I have to tell you instead, get outside of it. Okay. And I, and I really, it, this is an important conversation because what I don't want people to think is don't go to a doctor. You know, I think we've, I've watched a few people, um, you know, over the last several years that became so anti-doctor, they died of things that would absolutely had they been treated could have been handled. And I want to be clear. Like I had an issue, a health issue where, and I've talked about it. If anyone has missed it, you can, go through that entire embarrassing experience, but, um, you know, I had a real blood issue where I had to get transfusions. I was afraid of being, uh, getting vaccinated blood. And so I went down to Mexico and, and, and handled that. I had a surgery, so I'm not anti doctors, but I did, I, I have an advantage because number one, I worked on the doctors and now I've been on this show with every great creative thinking mind in medicine. I have somewhere to go, What does someone do and what is your advice to people that are absolutely terrified right now? And I think rightfully should be in these giant hospital systems that if they go in, they're not they're not necessarily they're afraid they're not going to get treatment or they're going to be killed by the hospital system. So at this moment, and I know that there's a lot you want to do to repair it. What's your advice to someone in this moment? How do they handle something that is either, in my case, it was hemorrhoids and let that go on too long, or I know people that have had heart conditions that they let go on too long, but they're just so afraid now to go into the hospital system. What's your advice?
2: First of all, take care of yourself at home to make sure that you're as healthy as you can be. And then you have to find a primary care physician, family physician you trust. You have to develop that relationship so when you are in time of need, you have someone to trust, someone to bounce the ideas off. Then have your health care plan written out. Have it, uh, you know, notarized by an attorney. Have it in the right place. Make sure that all your family members are aware what your wishes are. And then um, if you're comfortable, if, if you have a good relationship with your doctor, your doctor can become your advocate if you have to go to the hospital. And if you don't have that exact relationship, find someone else in your family or there are a lot of different organizations that will do that. And then go to the hospital and look around, decide which ones you like. When my patients are not feeling well, they'll call me and say, where would you want me to go? And I just tell them, this is where I take my family. This is the hospital I trust. And they know if they go there, that I will follow up on them. So you have to have a plan. You can't just, you know, I read these things, uh, I will never go see a doctor. And sure, I hope you don't have to but what if you have an appendicitis and you need that surgery? Right. I'm hoping you will get there. But if you can plan ahead, that's one way to at least um, try to go prepared into this battle because it is a battle. Because like he said, during the COVID, a lot of patients' wishes were not listened to, and that's probably the biggest shame to our profession.
0: Do you think... Uh Kat, is there an advantage to doctors that have private practice versus those who are in the hospital system?
2: I've been in private practice since 2017, and I think it's the best thing I've ever done. Because truly, like I always say, my boss is my patient. You know, we have a conversation. I don't tell them what to do, we, we talk together and we find a solution that works for them. My life is better. I feel happier. My family is happier because I'm happier, and my patients love it. You know, um, I have direct primary care practice. I'm by myself. I don't even have a nurse. Uh, usually, when I'm doing something, my phone is right next to me, and I'm always looking at it to see patients texting me. But it's the best thing I've ever done, and because the fa- the patient has become a family, and most of my patients are on Facebook, so they see things I do. And if I'm to travel outside of the country, sometimes they'll. You know, I'll find out when I come back, they went to urgent care. I'm like, why didn't you call me? They're like, why well, didn't want to bother you? Because we become a family. So I do think that finding someone outside of the system is probably the best thing to do. And people always say, well, I don't have the money to do that. Direct primary care is one of those uh, subspecialties where it's truly affordable. Families don't pay much. And if you have a direct primary care doctor or specialist and then you have uh, insurance in the case an emergency then you covered in the hospital as well so you have to be you have to participate in your health you can't just say well I'll do whatever I want to I have this insurance card if something happens and you know things are just going to happen you have to have a plan you have to actually be a gatekeeper of your own health and if you do that I think things will work out for the best.
0: Michael, I have a question for you. I mean, you obviously put your butt on the line. You you got patients, Ivermectin, you're being, you know, in the news for just trying to do what's right. Um, Now when patients come in, do they ever ask, you know, where are you at with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or these things like does the conversation come up? And if so, how do you respond to to the
1: conversation? Sure. Comes up frequently still. Most of them know my position on it. I'm part of the frontline COVID critical care Alliance. I've gone to their uh, annual meetings and such. And so it's pretty notable, but yeah, some people still will ask, you know, can I get a prescription for ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine? How do you feel about it? And I wrap it up in a larger discussion of let's get you as prepared as possible as an outpatient if you fall ill to be successful and to avoid going to the hospital. Or if you're struggling from long COVID, let's get you over that. There are ways to treat long COVID. You know, FLCCC protocols is a great starting point. That's what I use. And you're in Washington
0: State, right? Yes. I mean, Washington State's got some really terrifying leadership right now. The governor, there's been horrific, uh, passing all sorts of laws. Do you feel safe to have, be having those conversations in your practice?
1: Well, that's a great question. There's a biblical proverb that comes to mind, which says the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I try to be that person. Yeah. You know, yes, there have been to your point, uh, several investigations into my license exactly because i prescribed ivermectin and what's interesting is none of these complaints to the medical board were made by patients none of them i said about I've, the
0: doctors it's never coming from the patients yeah. it's the it's the peers or you know some outside correct group.
1: it's i've never had a patient say this didn't work i'm disappointed or it harmed me right. never nothing but happy patients and immediate family right the, the, the complaints will come from the patient goes to an urgent care, the ER, and they're looking at their medical history and say, oh, who wrote this prescription for ivermectin? Oh, Dr. Turner. And then the ER doc calls in a complaint. Okay? Or it'll be someone's distant relative like an aunt. Aunt Susie's a nurse over in a more liberal area. Who gave you this? Who gave you this? you know What quack doctor gave you this? You know, right. Make a phone call. Um, so, yeah. So my license is actively under investigation. I have had to retain a lawyer. Um, they're doing a great job working for me, but I'm, I'm fighting every day. There's like a guillotine hanging over my neck in Washington state's mind. They love for Michael Turner to disappear and the license to be gone.
0: So, I asked that because I wonder because i I, I really mean it i I, I want I have, I have two issues, which is one, I'm telling my audience, I don't want you to ever sign over your brain again because you know the clergy of white coats told you to do something. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we've got to be able to find a way to get to and you know there's great groups out there that can help us find doctors, but I wonder, do you think that maybe one of the litmus tests for anyone new right now or is, is starting to shop for a doctor could be to ask the doctor what they actually think about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? And if they can't or don't, like, oh, it's, it's, it's horse-paced, is that time for me to walk away from that
1: doctor and find somebody else? I would say so. That's a fair question. That's a yep. fair litmus test, yeah. Or more broadly, maybe more gently, uh, you know, what would be your approach to treating COVID? Outside of the hospital, well, there is none. Well, okay, then this is not your doctor. Right? <laughs> right. Or, how do you feel about these vaccines? How safe and effective are they? Right, fair question. Yeah, open-ended. Yeah, you know, but that'll give you a sense of where they're at.
0: Is there? D- there any, do you think of good questions, or what other questions might you add? I think to a those are great
2: questions, and those are questions I still have patients sign up for my practice, and lots of them will ask those questions, and I think they're fair questions. Because they want to know if something happens. You know, if you follow WHO, the pandemic treaty and IHR amendments, something is going to happen, right? Yeah. So they want to know that their doctor is open-minded to things that they might need to use when it comes to next pandemic, next emergency. And uh, doctors have to be ready for that conversation.
0: Just to sort of, we could go on so many different avenues here. But when we think about that, when we think, you know, we have the WHO, we have Bill Gates, we have Klaus Schwab, we have Tony Fauci, these people promising us not only another pandemic will happen, but it's going to be worse than COVID, which is a crazy statement to make given to prior to just COVID, pandemics happen like every 50 years. Mm -hmm. Now it's like we should be expecting one every year or two is what it sounds like which you can, whatever you want to get into where they're coming from or how they have this knowledge, but this idea that it's coming and the need, if it's greater than COVID, for doctors, for an army of doctors that actually are going to be available to people is massive. I mean, do you think about that? I mean, one of the problems was the with the mail order, right? There was just a couple of groups I was telling everyone I knew. And they're like, I can't get my, you know, I'm not getting that. It's not getting to me in the mail. And I'm calling. I said, look, I just promoted you to some friends like Dell. We have millions of orders. Like it's like it's off the charts how many orders we have. We're just we are trying to handle 15 states right now. We're just one practice. And when you look at that potential, where are you going to be if you're just this handful of doctors that know how to treat or are willing to treat what are you thinking about? Your, what do you do to try and get other doctors to wake up and join an army of actually critically thinking, talented professionals?
2: I will say it's again consumer. You talk with your money, you talk with your insurance card, you don't go to the doctors, they don't believe the same things you do, and I think they're going to have to wake up to so that. So
0: we force the change. The 100%. Consumer. People force
2: the change. I don't think it's going to come from within the medical profession because if you look at what's happening in medical schools right now, you know, I don't know if you looked at some of the oaths that they were reciting at their medical graduations, things are not going the way they should be going for the public. I think the medical community is getting more indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. So I firmly believe that the consumer people are the ones that are going to force this change. Now we're going to help and we're gonna share our stories to get them to realize that this is the way forward. But we need you to do the work.
1: I would like to add on to say, on, on the doctor side, I think we do have a responsibility. Um, as you mentioned, from the consumer side, definitely. Vote with your pocketbook in your feet, right? But on the doctor side, we do have a responsibility, to your point, I think, to begin to band together that team of doctors to reimagine medicine that's more that has more integrity, is more patient-centered, et cetera. Again, William Mayo, the best census of the patient is the only interest to be considered, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's powerful. So we have our job. We we have to decide who we want to be as physicians, right? How do we want to lay our heads on that pillow at night, right? And it, if we want to be someone truly working in the best interest of the patient, you know, truly coming out with novel ways of treating, keeping people out of the hospital, avoiding these pandemics, et cetera, we've got to change up our practice style we've got to band together and we've got to start speaking out so i take my hat off truly for the people who are on the vanguard of that the dr mccullough dr merrick yeah. dr corey all these people tremendous hits they took as you know deplatformed, yeah. censored fired all of that right <laughs> yeah. but but a courageous example is inspiring though Right. All it takes is one, two people. We all know that picture of Tiananmen Square back in the 80s. Right. When the one guy standing in front of a tank and the tanks backing up and trying to go around him. Right. And China's tried to censor that image because it's riveting. It's riveting. So each doctor needs to start standing up, stepping up, speaking out at mics on, you know, at school board meetings, etc. Because one example can be riveting. That's courageous. And it can start to catch.
0: Such an important conversation. I want to thank you both for joining us today. This is the dialogue that needs to happen. It needs to be happening, you know, in families. It needs to be happening between, you know, the patient and the doctor and amongst doctors to each other. I hope more and more of them reach out to you as they see you speaking out and saying, you know, I felt the same way. I'm afraid. I want to practice medicine in a better way. I want to thank you for helping sort of making this visible uh, through the high wire and take your time today.
1: Yes, so. thank you so right. much. It's yes. really great having you. Thank you. you. Yeah, great. All right.